Micah chapter 1, a prophecy of the destruction of both Israel and Judah. The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split, like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire. And all of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. Because of this I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals, and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. At Beth la Afra, roll yourself in the dust. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. The inhabitant of Za'anan does not escape. The lamentation of Beth Ezel, he will take from you its support. For the inhabitant of Maroth becomes weak waiting for good, because calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Therefore you will give parting gifts. On behalf of Moresheth Goth, the houses of Achzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Maresha. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. Amen. Well, the prophet Micah is situated here in the book of the Twelve Prophets between Hosea and Malachi, perhaps in chronological order. We spoke about this when we started our series in the book of Hosea, that this is probably in chronological order from Hosea to Malachi. Certainly the last three books fit the latest period of Israel's history in in reference to these prophets And Micah also does fit this midpoint era. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, then Habakkuk, Zephaniah. All of this is in perfect chronological sequence. And so what is this period? This period of time for Micah is dated, according to verse 1, to be in the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
which would be roughly 760 BC to 700 BC. 760 to 700 BC, the time that Micah lived. We don't know exactly when during that period he received these oracles and wrote this book, but it was during the reigns of these three kings. It also says here that Micah is from Moresheth. Moresheth is a town or village in Judah. It's mentioned further in verse 14. Moresheth Goth. Moresheth Goth because it's a small, obscure town, but it is near the big town or the big city, Goth, which often belonged to the Philistines. But this is actually in the tribe of Judah. Micah, therefore, is from the south. He's from the tribe of Judah, the major uh, kingdom that had a few good kings. After the kingdom, one kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, for 120 years, it was a unified uh, kingdom with all the 12 tribes under one king. But after the death of Solomon, Rehoboam took the south and Jeroboam took the north. And the north was um, predominantly called Israel and the south was predominantly called Judah. The northern kingdom, most of its history, had Samaria as its capital, mentioned in verse 1. And in the southern kingdom, Jerusalem was the capital of the south. And these oracles or this vision is concerning both the north and the south. And he chooses to name it based on the capital cities of the north and south. Also, this Micah, in our verse, Micah chapter 1, verse 1, a short form of his name appears, and that's why the translators and transliterators have it as Micah. This is probably to distinguish him, Micah of Moresheth, probably to distinguish him from Micaiah son of Imlah, mentioned in 1 Kings 22. Micaiah son of Imlah, who would have lived about a hundred years before this Micah. Micaiah was also a prophet, a true prophet, in the face of many false prophets. And we will see that this Micah also has to preach against the false prophets of his own generation. Further, we see some critical or crucial verses, and even a few very familiar verses to us. In terms of why he's writing, he tells us why. Sometimes the authors of Scripture do so. In Micah chapter 3, verse 8, one of the crucial passages, and let's review them, just read them briefly. Micah 3, 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage, to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. He says that he's been commissioned, filled with, the, with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage, to make known. There's a purpose. His purpose in ministry is to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Which Micah starts the book that way. He starts the book with an ominous description of God, and then a condemnation of their sin. This is similar to Isaiah, as Isaiah starts his book. It's similar to Jeremiah and many of the prophets. It's also even similar to the book of Romans, 
What does the Apostle do in chapters 1, 2, and 3? He lays out, he describes in detail man's sin. Because if man doesn't know his sin, he doesn't know that he needs a Savior to save from his own sin and the penalty of hell forever. So Micah does the same. Another important passage is Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, which is messianic. Micah chapter 4, verse 8 is also, And as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And this king who will reign is also mentioned in verse 4, 4, 7. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. What is he talking about? He's talking about the future messianic or Christological kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Chapter 6, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, more key verses. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal, in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. A reminder of God's goodness to them in the face of opposition. Then another key passage is Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8. The people are wondering what God wants. Does he want sacrifices? Does he even want my, my son, my firstborn son? And God's answer is no. Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Furthermore, chapter 7, chapter 7, 5, and 6, the famous passage that Jesus quotes is found right here in Micah 7, 5, and 6. Do not trust in a neighbor, do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Then at the end, Micah 7, 18 to 20. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Here is a promise to the remnant, a promise to the remnant that God will forgive their sin. And also in 7.18, there is a play on words. Who is a God like you? The name Micah, the name Mikah means who is like. It's an abbreviated form. But if it were Mikayah, then it would be who is like Yah or who is like the Lord. Or even 
Mikael means who is like God. And that's actually what's here in, in Micah 7, 18. Who is like God? Nobody's like God who does this kind of thing to provide redemption for his people. Okay, now let's go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, 2 to 7. 2 to 7 is one unit where he details or expresses the character of God and the judgment of God against sin. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Verse 2 is addressed to the peoples of the earth, because the peoples of the earth are in the same predicament as Israel and in that terms of sinning against God, contradicting, disobeying his commandments, his Ten Commandments. They all do it, but Israel will be an example to the nations of what God thinks of it. Because they received the oracles of God, they received the word of God, yet they disobeyed it, and therefore God will rise up against them. He will witness against them. And he will do so from his holy temple. His holy temple. Where is this holy temple? Psalm 11, 4 says it's in heaven. Psalm 11.4 says it's in heaven. Isaiah 66.1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, God says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Therefore, we better listen. If God is going to rise up against sinners, we better listen. We better take heed. And also hear and listen Two things to note there. Here in chapter 1, verse 2, then chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1, we have the prophet repeating this introductory imperative here, or listen. And does this not remind us of something? In the book of Deuteronomy, in Moses' last series of exhortations before his death, Moses kept on telling the people, hear and listen. Hear and listen. In fact, the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, starts that way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Micah does the same. He calls on them to pay attention. Don't be droopy, don't be sleepy, don't doze, but pay attention. Don't consider these words to be frivolous words, unnecessary words, Pay attention. Because God is speaking, and He's speaking against us from heaven, both Israel and the nations. Verse 3 For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Why? Because God is going to come down. Well, when did He come down before? He came down before in Genesis chapter 11. He came down in Genesis 18 and 19, in Genesis 11, to see the Tower of Babel and the city which man had built, the men had built, in Genesis 11, 1 to 9. And in Genesis 18, 21 to 22, he says he's going to go down, he's coming down, he has come down from heaven to see 
what exactly is happening in Sodom before he punishes it. So God comes down from heaven, even though we think we are high and mighty creatures. God has to descend. He has to come down. He has to stoop to see us. He's actually of greater authority and glory than we are. And when he does come down, he's going to tread on the high places of the earth. These high places are shrines on hills and mountains. God's going to tread on them. That means he's going to trample on them. He's going to destroy them, in other words. The idols of the the world, God will destroy. Exodus 12, 12. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Exodus 12, 12. Here too. And no one can withstand it. Verse 4. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. He has here allusions to what he did both at Sinai and during the flood when he caused the earth to be disfigured. He caused trembling and shaking, upheaval of water, uh, fire, smoke, lightning. He caused all of that to happen. He did it before and he can do it again. He can do it literally or he can do it figuratively. Figuratively meaning by means of foreign nations invading or by means of locust plagues, Joel, or by means of famine, withholding rain, he can cause all of these kinds of things to happen. Nature to be in chaos and the people thereby. But when God does this, when God enters the scene of judgment, is it unjustified or is it justified? Man will say, that's unfair, that's wrong. But God says right here in verse 5, All this, all this judgment, is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. It's for their rebellion, for their sins. If they disobey God, they rebel against him. When they don't follow God's commandments, they sin against him. And it's well-deserved judgment, therefore. What specifically specifically is it in verse 5? What is the rebellion of Jacob? What is it? He answers his own question. Is it not Samaria? And what was in Samaria? The calf. Remember Hosea preached against the calf? The calf of Samaria. Also calves that were in Bethel and Dan. And scattered throughout the land. Yes, their rebellion is in that visible image, their idols. And even in Judah, in Jerusalem, he says, and what is the high place or what are the high places, literally, plural, what are the high places of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem was a mountainous area. It had several mountains and therefore very suitable for shrines and high places of idolaters to be placed on the tops of the mountains, on the high places. Judah and Israel, or Samaria and Jerusalem. They're all guilty. They all do it. In the case of Samaria, throughout their existence as a nation, as a kingdom, 
they had no good king. Twenty evil kings. In the case of Judah, they had a handful of good kings. They also had 20 kings, but they only had a handful of good ones. It caused their kingdom to have longevity compared to Israel, but they still eventually were destroyed because of unrepentant people. Verse 6, For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. Samaria is a very suitable area. It's a very suitable place to grow, to plant, to plant vineyards, to grow crops. However, God is going to turn this fertile land into a barren land. He's going to turn it into a heap of ruins where stones are piled up and piled up. Nobody lives there, only wild animals and weeds, but no more vineyards, no more lush green pastures, nothing like that. He's going to destroy it from the bottom, lay bare her foundations. God will. Verse 7, all of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire. And all of her images I will make desolate. God says he's going to make all of this, all of these idols desolate, right? But how will he do it? He doesn't come down physically and personally to destroy every single idol. Notice the passive voice of the first two statements in verse 7. Will be smashed, will be burned with fire. Who will do it? The foreigners will do it. The invaders will do it. They will destroy all the idols and earnings of the people. And whatever monetary gain they had from their spiritual harlotry, spiritual prostitution, that's what he means in 1 7. The harlot's earnings. The earnings of a harlot. He's talking about their spiritual prostitution. They were supposed to, as the wife of the Lord, be faithful to him, yet they refused to do so. This will echo what Hosea was preaching in Hosea chapters 1 to 3, primarily. The same here. Whatever they earned from their spiritual prostitution, they will have to return to their lovers. They will have to return. They earned and then returned. That's what's going to happen right there in verse 7. God has a way of negating and humiliating people who refuse to repent of sin. Negating their benefit and humiliating their pride. Now 8 to 16. 8 to 16. Even though in 2 to 7, he's been preaching against Samaria and Jerusalem, the north and the south, it appears in 8 to 16, his focus is against his own countrymen in the south. Because of all of the localities he mentions, starting in verses 10 and following. Because of these localities, he's saying, I'm from Judah, but I'm not biased toward Judah 
I'm not just railing against these enemies in the north. I'm also railing against my patriots, compatriots. I'm doing the same against them. And this is what he has to say because he's a part of them. He identifies himself with them. Verse 8, because of this, all that we just read, because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. Remember Isaiah 20, God told Isaiah to go barefoot and naked to display to the nations what exactly was going to happen. And the same here, Micah says, I need to do this. I need to wail. I need to be like this. I need to sound off like the jackals and the ostriches when they are in mourning. Weep, howl, wail. That's what I need to do, just like them. Because captives were taken away in humiliation. The conquered were stripped naked by the conquerors and sent off to foreign lands in humiliation. Verse 9, For her wound is incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Yes, whatever Israel did, they influenced Judah instead of Judah influencing Israel. It was an incurable, a fatal wound that Israel in the north inflicted on Judah in the south. A fatal wound. Remember, there were a few good kings in the south, and the south and the north had a few prophets, did they not? Why didn't the south, with their remnant, why weren't they strong enough, godly enough, to influence the north? Why were they not strong enough, numerous enough, to influence the rest of Judah? They weren't, because this is also showing the remnant in the time of Micah. Micah is preaching the remnant. There weren't enough people. This judgment was so overwhelming, or this influence, compromise, so overwhelming coming from outside, it engulfed us. It came to the very gate of my own people in Jerusalem. So, now, now that this judgment is certain, he says in 10, Tell it not in God. Weep not at all. At Beth le Afra, roll yourself in the dust. First, he says, Don't go to the foreign nations and tell them anything about it. Don't go there, because if you go to the neighboring nations, the Philistines own Gath. If they go to the Philistines, what will the Philistines say? Ha ha. They will mock and humiliate Judah because they, they will say, Judah, your God wasn't strong enough. Our God is stronger than your God. Or the Assyrian gods are stronger than your God. That's what will happen. This was also a similar phrase that David spoke 
in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 20. When Saul actually did die, Saul and Jonathan died in battle, David said the same. Tell it not in God. Don't go celebrate. Don't go tell those people over there because otherwise they're going to have a good time and mock us. We who should know better, we, should, we who should have done better. Um, instead, repent. And now he will mention the first few cities are going to be very obscure cities. And these cities are likely more in the northern part of Judah. And then he comes to Jerusalem and to the southern area around Judah, in the, uh, around Jerusalem in the nation of Judah. So a few cities in the north and then a few cities in the south, part of Judah, the southern kingdom. Perhaps he's mentioning these obscure, tiny cities or towns because he's trying to explain it's, the invasion is going to come from the north, which it usually is, if it's coming from Syria, Assyria, and Babylon. We'll see that it actually is going to come from Assyria and Babylon from the north. Also, though, often when invaders come, they usually have success with the big cities because they besiege them and they so constrict activity that eventually the city, the capital, has to give up. And if the capital gives up, then they can take over the rest of the country, right? But often, also, when invaders come, if there are small, obscure towns and villages in the mountains, in the forests, in places that are remote, they're not able to reach that far, right? And usually, the natives are able to keep control of their own small towns. That often happens, but it's not going to happen here. All of these small, obscure towns are also going to be humiliated, also will need to repent, also will be invaded and destroyed. 11. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. Referencing verse 8, where he's already mentioned that. He says, the inhabitant of Za'anan does not escape. Usually they would, but now they won't. The lamentation of Beth Ezel, he will take from you its support. God will take away their support. For the inhabitant of Maroth becomes weak, waiting for good. They're patiently waiting for the situation to change. They're patiently waiting for their circumstance, their plight to change. They're waiting for good, but in the meantime, they become weak, and then evil comes. That's the point. Because a calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Calamity from the Lord. Now, this calamity from the Lord reaching to the gate of Jerusalem this is explained in 2 Kings chapters 18 to 25. 2 Kings chapters 18 to 25. In the time of Hezekiah, there was a threat to Jerusalem. In the time of Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, there was a threat to Jerusalem. 
And then finally, in chapters 24 and 25 of 2 Kings, Jerusalem was finally fully invaded and destroyed. And the temple was destroyed. But this all came not from the idols of the nations. It came from the Lord, it says. Because a calamity or evil has come down from the Lord. He's the one in charge of all the nations, including Judah. 13. Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. This city, Lachish, was a fortified city. And here, they are going to be helpless and hopeless. Why? Because there too, though they had a fortification, they had many, many sins. Many, many sins. And even, it says, she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Apparently, this means that they started the whole evil, the whole rebellion of evil and rebellious acts in the land of Judah. They started it, and then it spread like a cancer throughout the kingdom. 14, therefore, you will give parting gifts. These parting gifts um, on behalf of Moreshet God, even on behalf of Micah's own hometown, Now, what's the parting gifts that even Micah's hometown will have to contribute? These parting gifts are when the ambassadors or emissaries of foreign kings are sent to Jerusalem and they are sent to negotiate. These are diplomats sent to negotiate and they say, Listen, this is what we plan to do to you. This is our intention. This is what we've been doing. We know who you are, and we know you don't support us. We will come invade your land. We will do it sooner than later if you do not give us our demand. So you must give us thus and so. This much gold, this much silver, this much whatever else they want. You must give it to us. So what do the ambassadors, what do the diplomats take back home? The gold and silver. Which examples we find in 2 Kings 12, 17 and 18, 2 Kings 16, 8, and 2 Kings 18, 15. Let's look at two examples. 16, 8. 2 Kings 16, 8. In 2 Kings 16, 8, this has to do with the time of Ahaz, an evil king, which was also contemporary to Micah. Remember, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 16, 8 says, And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. He sent a present there. Now, another one, 1815. This happened in the time of Hezekiah. 
This happened in the time of Hezekiah, also in Jerusalem. 1815. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. Why? Because of their sin. Further, in Micah 1.14, the houses of Oxzeb will become a deception to the kings of Israel. These houses, presumably great houses, large houses, which were their confidence were the confidence of the kings of Israel, they will be a deception. That which they put their hope in will deceive them. Their wealth, their fortifications, their confidence in these houses will come to nothing. In fact, the prophets are apt to use a play on words. Akzib and Akzav. The word for deception is Akzav, spelled with the same consonants as Akzib, but then just different vowels. He says that that's what's going to happen to this city. 15. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Maresha. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Here, here he says that God is going to bring on this city, Maresha, the one who possesses them, the one who's going to take possession of them. The foreigners who invade, God is the one who's going to bring them to inhabit this city. And then the glory of Israel, who or what is the glory of Israel? Likely, it's the kings. Because the kings of verse 14, they had fortified cities. They had their strong cities where they had their uh, war equipment. They had their soldiers. They had all kinds of facilities which they built up. And... Adullam was one of them. It was a royal city. But the royal city will now become a hiding place. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. And in Adullam, according to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, there was a cave. There were caves there. And these Glorious kings are going to run for their life in the caves. The place that was supposed to be strong will become weak. 16, so mourning and exile. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle for they will go from you into exile. He calls on them to cut off their hair. And why? In humiliation. And he says, because of the children of your delight. The city or the nation is often referred to as a woman, 
And the inhabitants of the city or the inhabitants of the nation are referred to as children. The glory of the nation is the children, the number of children, the children of your delight. But you're not going to have them anymore. Instead of many, there will be paucity of people. And therefore, your heads are going to be bald, bald like the eagle. Why? For they will go from you into exile. They're all going to disappear, which is explained for Israel in 2 Kings 17 and explained for Judah in 2 Kings 24 and 25. Micah will actually name the nations who will invade. First, Israel, Israel's invader is in chapter 5, verse 5. He says, When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, so there he mentions Assyria, which happened in 722 BC, destroying the north, never to exist again as a kingdom the north called Israel. And then he mentions Babylon in chapter 4, verse 10. Babylon, that will destroy the south by 586 B.C. 4.10, he says, Rise and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. And then he says, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. He's not only predicting exile of Judah to Babylon, but their return, which happened in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.